Well, I confess that I didn't really know where to begin with this sermon today. Scott and I often laugh that we have the tendency to begin telling stories in the middle of the story, or maybe even towards the end of the story, but often not at the beginning of the story. And it gets mighty difficult for our listeners to follow along and understand our point when we jump into a story somewhere mid-story. And I think that happens when the storyteller knows the whole story. And I'm thinking about that tendency today because perhaps you feel rightly so that you have been dropped into the middle of today's story. Add to that that this foot-washing scene is one quite familiar to most Christians, and so then we have a tendency to hear this story and respond, oh, yes, yes, I get it. But do we really? And do we recognize that we have indeed been dropped into the middle of a story here? So I think we should back up a bit to what is closer to the actual beginning of this story of John's, and that may help us unpack better what is going on. Last week, we did hear the remarkable story of the raising of Lazarus, Jesus calling back to life his dear friend who had been dead four days by the time Jesus arrived at his tomb. It is a classic, fabulous story. And the last we heard was the dead man, now alive, waddling out of the tomb, stinking to high heaven, most likely, and Jesus calling all those gathered to unbind Lazarus and set him free, back to life new life. And the curtain fell. And we all went home to the rest of our weeks. But a lot has happened since Lazarus found his way back to the world thanks to his pal Jesus. For starters, this became the final straw for the Jewish leaders. They couldn't take it any longer. With the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' believers multiplied quickly. Those willing to claim him as Lord grew and grew, and well, you know, if you're the ones in power, you're usually not too keen on the new kid gaining so many followers so quickly. So this is where the final plot to kill Jesus takes concrete shape. The death warrant has been written, the instructions to all have been given, find this man and bring him in. So, Jesus and his band withdraw to the hills, the raising of Lazarus is his final public act. It is the seventh of seven signs or miracles that he performs in John's gospel. And he is now a fugitive, hiding out from those who hunt him down. But he still makes a point to head back to Bethany, where Lazarus, Martha, and Mary live, for a final dinner with them. And there, six days before the Passover, is what must have been, I imagine, the most joyous and festive celebration among friends that history can imagine. Because just a few days prior, one of them had been dead, stuck in a tomb, sealed off from all those he loved and the world. And now, now Lazarus reclines at the table with his beloved Jesus, his two sisters, and the other 12 in company as well. Can you imagine? Resurrected life is a life of joyful relationship. It is a life of celebration. It is a meal with those that you love. Think for yourself of a meal in your life, a gathering at a table with those you love, and the food kept coming, and the laughter was rich and deep, and the conversation went on and on for hours. That is resurrected life. That is grace upon grace. That is what Lazarus now shares with Jesus. And then, 
in the midst of that meal, his sister Mary pulls out a jar of the most expensive nard oil, and she pours it all over Jesus' feet and wipes them clean with her hair. She anoints him with love and gratitude, with oil and tenderness. She washes his feet. And the scent fills the entire house. It wafts through every nook and cranny. It is the smell of grace upon grace. It is the perfume of abundant life and love. And of course, someone objects. Judas is there. And he's unhappy about this, unhappy about all of it, and he makes his objections known. Why wasn't this expensive oil sold and the funds given to the poor, he demands. Now, John tells us that Judas didn't really give a care for the poor. No, John says Judas was a thief, and he frequently stole from the communal purse. And so Jesus tells Judas to mind his own business, to leave Mary alone, that what Mary has done is a burial ritual of sorts. And then that day ends. And in the morning, Jesus and his crew head into Jerusalem, him riding on the back of a donkey, throngs of supporters there because of the whole Lazarus-raising event. They tote palm branches, waving and shouting Hosanna as Jesus enters the city. Yes, it's not bad enough that it's daylight savings time today, but we have already passed Palm Sunday in our scriptures. Today, we find the twelve at dinner with Jesus after that triumphant parade. It is the night before the preparation day of Passover. This, what we heard today, is the Last Supper, if you will, in John's Gospel. But there is no institution of a sacrament, no call to eat this meal in remembrance of Jesus, but rather an act of service, humble, loving service, the washing of dirty, mucky feet. And what do we recall right away? Mary, pouring expensive nard and washing Jesus' feet at dinner just a few nights ago. Mary, reaching out to Jesus with love and tenderness at a joyous celebratory dinner. Let's pause a moment and make a few clarifications. In the synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels that share many of the same stories, events, characteristics, the Last Supper is on the night of Passover, and the Last Supper is the Last Supper, as in the supper we know as communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. It is the event that sets up the sacrament for believers of all time. But here, here in John's Gospel, it is the night before all of that, and the Last Supper is simply that, Jesus' last meal before he dies. Why? Well, it will be important for John that Jesus dies on the preparation day in Passover, the day the lambs are slaughtered for the great sacrifice, because Jesus will be the great sacrifice for John. Jesus will become the lamb on Passover. So we just want to remember that John is pointing us towards different things than Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. So, here we are, Last Supper. Jesus knows it because he is in the utmost control in all of John's gospel. He has declared that his hour is at hand. Do you remember back to that wedding in Cana and has told his mother his hour had not come? Well, here it is. The hour has indeed come. And he takes off his outer robe, think sport coat, if you will, he wraps an apron around himself. He grabs a pitcher of water and he goes around the room. 
one by one, washing the feet of these dear friends who have traveled all over with him these last three years. These dear friends who call him teacher, Lord, master, he washes their feet. It is the Mary story in reverse. Having a woman or a slave or a servant, perhaps even a student, wash the feet of the teacher or master would not be totally unheard of, but the master, the teacher, to do so for the student, that is unheard of. And he washes the feet of all 12 gathered there, all 12, and that is really pulling at me this year. Judas, reclining with the others. Judas, whom we were told at the dinner at Lazarus's home would be the one to betray Jesus. Judas, who it is clear from today's scripture has already set his heart on betrayal. Judas, who we are told in verse 11, Jesus already knew would betray him. That Judas gets his dirty, yucky, unfaithful feet washed right along with the others. Why? Because the word made flesh always points back to God, always reveals something about God to us. And so we see that even traitors, even those who betray divinity, are still recipients of the grace upon grace that flows from divine love. It shows us so clearly God's unconditional love. Can you even begin to imagine? Jesus approaches Judas with deep love in his eyes and deep pain in his heart, knowing Judas is unfaithful, does not believe, has not accepted the gift of relationship, knowing all of that, and he tenderly pours the water over Judas's dirty feet and wipes them clean and dry with his apron and gazes upon Judas with, what, bewilderment, perhaps? Deep sadness, I imagine, and overwhelming love. Of that, I am convinced, and that gives me so much comfort. First, it tells me that all the ways I choose to deny the living Christ in no way affect the grace and love poured out over me as that water of grace poured over Judas, so it pours over me. But the other thing it tells me is that living water of grace pours over others, others that I may not be too fond of, others that I may be struggling with for whatever reasons, others whom in my judgy way I have labeled as traitors or betrayers, thieves or liars. They could be all those things or not. But this event tells me that God's grace still flows freely to them as well. And so, well, maybe I need to try to match that a bit better. It can be so very, very hard when we are deeply hurt by someone, when they do not behave the way that we think they should or want them to, when they do or say extremely hurtful things, Yet here is Jesus staring the betrayer in the eyes and lovingly tending to his stinking, dirty feet, washing them clean. 
And this story tells me that Jesus, God, allows all of that, does not force God's self upon us, loves us so much that we are free to accept or reject the relationship with the divine. You can't force love, right? What does it mean if you do? So even if we argued that God could make us love God or make us believe, that wouldn't be us loving or believing. For that love and that belief to be authentic and real, it has to come from us. And God allows that, knowing that some will indeed reject that love, that belief, reject that living water flowing over the dirtiest parts of their lives. I imagine we all know someone who has rejected the gift of divine love. They cannot seem to open the gift of faith. I'm not saying that they are Judas, but this story tells me that God can handle all that rejection so much better than I can. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard the wistful parents say to me, I don't know, our kids just never go to church anymore. They don't seem to even believe in God. I have some of those myself. It's a reality. This story tells me that John, his readers, their community, they grappled with those same struggles. Why do some believe and others do not? Why are some able to cling to the light and others prefer to walk in darkness? Why do some accept the relationship with God and others turn their backs and walk out the door? We just don't know. And there are no answers in today's text, but we do find company in our questions, in our longings for everyone to have and know what we have. Now, later in this evening that we heard about, after all the dirty feet have been washed, after Jesus will explain what he has done for them, after he tells them to do this for each other, Judas will leave into the darkness into the night, the darkness, and then the curtain closes on this chapter of the story. From dinner with Lazarus to dinner with the twelve, from Mary washing Jesus' feet to Jesus washing their feet, and Jesus' departure into the night, leaving forever a relationship with Jesus. And then finally for today, I am reminded of Peter's initial reaction, a rejection of the gift. Oh no, I cannot possibly let you wash my dirty feet. I cannot let you serve me. I cannot let you do for me this thing that I do need, for my feet are indeed dirty and yucky and stinky, but no. And what does Jesus tell him? Unless you let me do this for you, give you this gift, serve you this way, you cannot be a part of me. We must be able to receive just as we are able to serve. We must be willing to accept the service, the gifts, the offerings of those who love us or are around us. Otherwise, we really are not in any position to turn around and do for others because Jesus is setting up a mutuality here. Not just the idea that we humble ourselves in order to serve others, but that as equals in all of this Christian life, we are just as willing to let others serve us. Now, if you're anything like me, that can be very difficult. Till the day she died, my mother claimed my first sentence was, do it mine own self. 
and Scott will tell you it is still a frequently heard phrase in our home. No thanks, I'm fine. Oh, I can do that, thank you anyway. Nope, all good here. We repeat over and over and over until we crash and burn. I got some good lessons in this when my life was a train wreck, single mother of three, working full time, going to seminary, and broke. And folks would offer and offer, and I would refuse and refuse until someone got a key to my home and my heart. They would come in and clean my house while we were all gone. They showed up en masse, unannounced, on December 20th with a Christmas tree, decorations, and a bottle of wine. Because you guessed it, even though Christmas was less than a week away and I had three kids in the home, there wasn't one decoration up. But I was fine, thank you. I didn't need any help at all. I could go on and on with the gifts that have been stowed on me and my family in our times of need, in our times of stinking, dirty feet. The point is, Peter shows me that my initial reaction is common, but that the correct reaction is, thank you, Jesus, clean whatever part of my life needs it, please. So, maybe we should all ask ourselves, what gifts or assistance or service are we too proud to let ourselves be given or to accept? And why? What might happen if we opened ourselves to receive from others the way we want to give to them? How might living water gush through our lives? What might get washed clean? This action of Jesus on the last night of his life, given for his dearest friends, it is a sermon to the world about how to love. And not just those that we find easy to love, but all the Judases that are out there as well. This is what grace upon grace feels like. Dirty feet washed clean. Acts of humble service. Love received from others filling our hearts as we turn to do the same for them. Amen.